0: You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their
1: journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another week of our Living Scent Podcast. Here with Paul Wilkinson and Jason Dukes, I'm Jay Fennell, and we're going to have another great week. Of unpacking some important questions for us as we continue our journey through the Living Sent Curriculum and really embrace and uh, a lot of the things that we're we're hearing in, in in our sermons and in life groups, but uh, but but hopefully you've had some opportunity over the last week to really ponder and think and pray about what God's doing in your own life uh, with this whole idea of of being someone who is sent, being. A Scent One or Living sent, And this week, we've got some other questions that we want to pose and, and kind of unpack a little bit. And the first question that we want to ask today to Jason Dukes, I'll let him lead off on this one, has to do about how we describe the church, perhaps, pronouns that we might use to describe the church. So my question to you is this, is the church a what or a who, and why does that matter? Can you answer that for us, Jason?
0: I will do my best. So I I would suggest that the church is a who.
1: Okay.
0: And not a what. Why do you feel that way? I, I say that. I say that because in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the church is referred to 140 times or more, and not one time is a place or an event. And so the church is not a. A, something to go to or something to come from or something to be in or something to be at. Uh, the, the, the New Testament, in fact, never uses those four prepositions with the word church. And so it's it's funny to me how, especially most evangelicals, want to be very true to the scriptures. And yet with this particular very pretty central Notion, right? This central element of our theology, this this idea of church. Um, we speak of church in ways that the New Testament never does. It's the most common way we talk about church, right? In church, at church, from church to church, and yet the New Testament never speaks of church that way. It's always a people, a who, and I think that I think that's important.
1: When did uh, when did we start using those those pronouns uh, to really begin, in in your opinion, to describe the church as a place or an event, being at church or in church or going to church. When did that all change, do you think, for
0: us? Well, it's, it's interesting because the churches were typically, in the New Testament, they were typically linked to a city, right? So it, it really was just Jesus's church, right? Right. But his church in Ephesus, right? So the church of Ephesus or the church of Philippi or the church of Thessaloniki or you know, on and on. And so that word of wasn't magical in any way. It just was indicating the church, the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus existing together in Philippi, right? Well, around the, around the mid-300s, when more than a majority of the Roman Empire had become Christ followers, supposedly, um, Constantine decided to give all of the pagan temple buildings to the church. And and it and, and some historians say that it was literally as fast as last week we were having debaucherous worship activities in this building, and a week later the Christian church was meeting in those buildings. And so you had hundreds of years where they were never defined by a building or defined by a place or an event. And now all of a sudden they're defined by this building. And I've actually been in the first, the very first uh, building that Constantine gave and and that the church used. And it's interesting that from that point on, I think we began to see a shift in the way that people thought of church as a what
2: more than a who.
1: Hmm.
2: I think one of the radical notions in the New Testament from Jesus, particularly in John 4, with the woman at the well, and she asks, where do we worship? Um, this temple or that temple, this hill or that hill? And Jesus, in his radical ways, says it's about worshiping spirit and truth, not at a hill, so that God is pervasively indwelt through the Spirit, every believer. That's so right. So we don't go to a location to find God or worship God, but you become the mediator of God's presence yourself. And that's, that's really living scent.
1: So what does that mean then for Christ followers today when they go back to their neighborhoods and when they go to their workplaces and when they go on vacation and they're at the ballpark? What are the implications of that?
0: Well, I think I think there are, I think there are many, but I think I think two that you can narrow in on are we've done a lot of getting people in church, right? That church growth drove that, right? And so, and that, I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I think, I think it may have had some consequences that we didn't mean for it to have, right? Where, where we, where we began to care more about people being in church, really, even than we did about them being in Christ, right? And, and I don't know anyone, in fact, in church leadership that would disagree with this statement, that in their opinion, there are a lot of people that are maybe in church, quote unquote, that aren't necessarily in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you're going to be his church. And, and so, you know, in in that sense, I think it's important that we understand that distinction that, you know, the goal isn't just to get people in some kind of place or an event or add that kind of activity to their lives. The goal isn't so much to, to get that happen, to get, get it happening to where they are, you know, um, a church member only, but where they truly are engaging in Christ and are, are growing in abundant or experiencing abundant life and becoming a disciple of Jesus that does what Jesus has really asked them to do, which is, you know, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. So I think that's one implication, But but I think another pretty serious implication of it is that our lost culture, our lost and searching culture around us, defines church the way that we have Mm -hmm. and we have not thought of the church right as a as a as we we haven't talked about the church we i know a lot of people who would say the church is people but they'll turn right around in the next sentence and say, "And tonight we don't have church because it's the Super Bowl night, you know, or whatever." Like you, right. you know, like we we can teach a whole sermon series on that, and then turn right around and emphasize something completely different. And I think our lost, the lost and searching culture around us is seeing it for what we have spoken and, and given language to the church to be, instead of really seeing it lived out in our lives. And mm-hmm. and that's a big deal. Like last week, we talked about the mission of God and the story of God. If you think about it, the fact that God named his son God with us, that's a big deal. So this dwelling with God and presence with God and from all the way from the garden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the synagogues, to the sanctuary that Paul says he's making us to become, to the city of God that we become when we are the dwelling, we get to dwell with God. Like that notion, that idea is formative. In our very purposes. And so to understand that we are the church, we are the ones who dwell with God, and we gather for some specific reasons as we live on mission with Him, I think that's a big deal.
1: Yeah. We gather, but also scatter. So we take. That's right. So we are the church in our neighborhood as we go. That's right. As followers of Jesus, in our workplaces, wherever He sends us, we are the church in that context. So it's not a building. That we come to, it's a people who gather, but also who are also deployed into a world. That's right. Yeah. Do you believe any non-sent notions? So, obviously, we've been looking at this-this whole idea of living sin-is this notion that we, as Christ was sent, we too are sent as his disciples into a world. Uh, to to reach, to teach, to help people, and to make disciples, right? Um, but the question then becomes: What are those notions in our lives that might would hinder us from making disciples? Some things that we might have in our lives, in our hearts, that might would become barriers to us truly understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to be a, dis- a disciple who makes disciples. So Jason's here again. Jason, talk to us a little bit about this whole idea of nonsense notions that people might have in their lives.
0: Yeah, so, so this it's, it's a play on words, obviously, to with the word nonsense, right? It's like you know people people might say you know someone says something and someone might respond, "Oh, that's nonsense," and you know we. And and a lot of times, especially for Christ followers, <clears throat> we don't mean to have a belief that maybe actually hinders our living sin or our disciple making. We may not mean to have uh, a notion that we hold dear, you know that 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 does, but but we often do, and and so. You know, it, sometimes when you're talking about living sin, it, it, it isn't as much about the tell me what I need to go do. Sometimes it's about this reorientation of, of trying to figure out what I might need to quit doing or what I might need to quit believing, what I might need to, what I might need to rethink, right? which obviously rethink repentance. You know, those are things that are, that are, that are central to, to this life of following Jesus. And so there are going to be some things that maybe we've held dear. Some, you know, even what we talked about yesterday, right? If you think church is a place or an event, for instance, if you, if all you ever say or talk about the church is the end at, to, or from church, you know, you are, it's a nonsense notion. Church is a nonsense notion to you. It's something that people go to. It's not something that people are necessarily sent from. It's not a people that go out in the middle of where they live, work, and play, that go out among the lost and searching into the neighbors and nations and become a letter of Jesus and of his gospel message, translating that gospel into the very rhythms and relationships of their lives. And so, you know, a non-sent notion would be something that that hinders us in that way.
1: So, Jason, what are... Some other examples that might be common in the church today about this whole idea of non-sent notions.
0: Well, I think I think you've got uh, obviously several types of of key doctrines that we hold to, and and there are often ways that we have perverted it or or maybe thought poorly in the way that we've interpreted it. Um, for example, uh, we we think about the priesthood of the believers, which is obviously a key doctrine. I think, uh, in that sense, you know, we, what we're saying is we're all key leaders, key individuals in this have been invited into this mission of God. Well, you know, I, I sat across with coffee with a guy that I was walking, doing life with trying to pour into and engage in disciple making I sat across from him over coffee a few years ago, and he looked me point blank in the eyes and said, not everybody's meant to be a disciple maker. Not everybody's meant to engage in ministry like that, right? So, you know, I mean, that. I, and what was funny, what was interesting about that conversation, because I was, I wouldn't, I did not, I picked up pretty quickly that I probably wasn't going to convince him otherwise, but the door, the door that opened for me to help convince him otherwise was he ended up admitting later in the conversation, probably about 10 minutes later, he said, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, is I've really been struggling with discerning how God's leading me right now in my life. I mean, I just don't know what I need to be doing, right? Well, obviously, I jumped on that to say, well, hey, let me, let me throw something out to you that he's already commanded you to do, get kind of commissioned us to be doing, and you're not doing it. And so because you're not doing it, it might actually be hindering you and clogging up the very ways that you're discerning God's leadership in your life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that, that would be an example of a nonsense notion. And I can give a couple others too, but Paul, you may have,
2: you may have some. Yeah. One that affected me is learning a lot of New Testament scholarship about the corporate identity and understanding of the New Testament writers. A lot of them being Jewish,, uh, but this idea that when they speak uh, about election many times, um, then again, when they talk about the church and the gathering, they have a corporate notion, not an individualistic notion. yeah, and for years, I functioned exclusively as individualistic. Now certainly we have attention, and both are present, but if we deny the corporate identity of a lot of those comments, then we become Christians on islands. That's right. we don't become this one one cent army, uh, so to speak, as we move out to expand the kingdom of God. so, Uh, The radical individualism, I would say extreme individualism, was a nonsense notion for me. Mm -hmm. For sure. I I think one other example
0: that I would give, and I I hear this a lot in the South, and so maybe this will be meaningful to some of our listeners. Um, But I heard, and I heard this in seminary even, but you'll hear in a lot of Southern churches this statement, that God can't go near sin. Right? That our sin has separated us from God. And we're separated from him because God can't go near sin. And I, I would hear that in, in different, from different preachers and different people, different individuals would hold that. Well, I don't, I think what we don't realize when we're saying that is what we're really saying, even though I don't know that many of those people meant this, we're missing the thought that even in the Garden of Eden, right, they had sinned, they hid, and God went and pursued them, even said, "Where are you?" Not only did he draw them out into the light again, but he then did two key things. he then made clothes for them to be merciful to them in their nakedness and then not, it wasn't so much and I, and I get this may be controversial, but it wasn't so much then that he quote unquote banished them from the garden because of their sin, but he removed them from the garden. It says in the text so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. It was a protection against them. I don't want that to live forever, is what the text says. He's saying he's saying, Look, I want them out of here because I don't I don't really I don't want this knowing good and evil to live forever. I want I'm gonna I've already put a plan in place that's even now in motion to restore it back to just knowing me and my goodness. And that, that day will come when that's restored, when that life that I intended is resurrected. But a lot of times what we've done is we've taken that idea and we've translated it in such a way that we then look down on culture and talk about, can you believe how bad the culture is? Right? Cause, cause, but that's founded in this notion of, you know, Hey, well, God can't be near sin, so though his holy people don't need to be near sin, so we're going to shelter ourselves away from and retreat away from the culture. And we miss the, the idea that he became Emmanuel, that the light moved right into the middle of the darkness and said, you know, hey, I came here to clarify what the fathers intended all along. And so we, we can miss this mission that God's really called us on mm-hmm. if we hold to that kind of an idea. Right? When, when maybe a better way to say it is not that God can't be near sin, Mm -hmm. but, but that he has actually an anger towards sin. And, and because it, because it hurts us. It's destructive Mm -hmm. in our lives and we are his beloved. And so he can come near to us, sinners, right? And he in fact did come near to us. And in fact, that's the gospel. Yeah. Now, I've I've heard
1: Mike Glenn on, on a number of occasions talk about how uh, some believers have uh, perhaps complained, maybe been anxious about the fact that they might be the only Christian or Christ follower in their, in their workplace or something. And they, they are concerned about that and, and have even said, Hey, you know, I need to find, you know, find work elsewhere, you know, because of the influences and stuff. And, And rather than that, Mike has encouraged them to uh, stay in that space, to be the light in that dark place. Because maybe God is the one who sent them there to be that missionary. That's right. To be that sent one uh, to begin to turn things toward Christ in that environment.
0: That's good.
1: Good. Today we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus, quote, make us to become? And we're going to take a look at, Mark chapter 1, verse 17. So let me read that, and then uh, we'll we'll begin to unpack. How about that? Sound good? Uh, So it's the context of Jesus calling his disciples. He's along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net by the lake. And he comes to them, and in verse 17 he said, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So these are fishermen, these brothers. And he is calling them out, calling them to follow him. Jason, unpack some of your thoughts uh, to get us started today around this this verse and and the the impact the implications that it has had for them, but also has for us today.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. Um, first of all, I would give a Maybe a, a thought to kind of help detox or unpack something that we typically think almost like, like we talked about last week, how the Great Commission gets labeled a missions verse or a, a discipleship verse or an evangelism verse. And we, we categorize it into these ways. This verse has typically been categorized as an evangelism verse, right? Like you, you know, we follow Jesus and so we should, we should evangelize. We, he makes us into fishers of men. Unfortunately, what we're missing sometimes when we say that or what we're not seeing because of the English translations is what what Jesus is, the word that he uses there when he says, follow me and I will make you to become. The, the New American Standard, the ESV English Standard, and then the New King James, I think it is, are three of the English translations that really bring out what that Greek word is saying. And it's a word that in extra-biblical literature Uh, of the first century was used to talk about existence right my identity my existence and so today in today's culture identity is a big deal and it's really a big deal to everyone but you hear a lot of talk about it today maybe unlike you've heard it talked about in years but you know people are really giving serious energy into this idea what's my identity and it's almost like Jesus is saying to them, these guys in particular who were fishermen, right? That's the context you tell us. They were fishermen. And it's, it's almost like he's saying to them, hey, this is what you've been known as. The people in the Galilee community, they know you as fishermen. But I'm going to make you to be known as, to exist as, to have an identity as something else. You're not just going to be fishermen; you're going to be fishers of men, or how the, some of the modern translations will say, "fishers of people." And you know, I think all I think all he's doing there is saying to them, "I'm going to take what you have been identified as, and and give it my righteous purposes. I'm going to frame it again in my righteous purposes." What's encouraging about that is two things: one, that no matter what you and I do in our everyday lives that Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom purposes into his great mission into what he is up to so for you moms out there whether you work or you don't work as a mom of those kids you are invited into the grander purposes of the story of god as a as a worker in the marketplace maybe who feels like you're a leader or you do things that are incredibly mundane you were invited into this creator, right? So this, so if Jesus had been talking to bankers, he might not have said fishers of men, right? He might have said investors in people. And if he'd been talking to teachers, he might have given another metaphor. If he'd been talking, but to these fishermen, he's saying, no, this is what your identity has been. And I'm going to renew, I'm going to make it a new identity. And he does that with so many people throughout the Bible, doesn't he? Where they had this name, they, they end up with this name, you know, whether it's even Abram to Abraham, right? And and, and it's this, uh, this it's this moment where he's saying to them, because you're with me, this is the identity that you now have. That's an important thing because what he says he's making us to become is an identity linked to disciple-making, linked to a life of helping other people discover their identity in Christ. And that's important, that that's not just an add-on. Evangelism, disciple-making, however you want to call this, mm-hmm. making disciples among those who are lost and searching, right, That that is not an add-on to who we are as the church. It's our identity.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the things that I love about it, too, is that it's very... It, it, it's obviously... Jesus taking the initiative to to do the making. That's right. You know, Uh, obviously there's a role that we play in the sense that we make the decision to follow. Yeah. And we say, yes, Jesus, I'm coming after you. But he is the one that does much of the work in our own lives to make us to become what he wants us to become
0: yeah he's right? the, he's the initiator right right he he invited us to follow right so even our response to follow is a response to his initiation and his invitation but but then furthermore you know he then not only invites us into that initial relationship but promises and almost in this sustaining way hey you don't have to make yourself something for me mm-hmm Right, I, I'm going to make you to become something, and I think I think man, talk about the pressure being off. Yeah, I get I don't have to go live for God. Then I get to live with Him, and that that's a big deal.
1: And the, the truth is, too, is that we're incapable of making ourselves anything really. Yeah, because of just our limitations and our flaws and even our sin. But yet, Christ and His mercy and His grace has invited us along with what He is doing in the world and making us to become what it, exactly what he wants us to become in this in this epoch of time, uh, in our context, in, in our sphere of influence, to uh, to make disciples yep. that follow him. Yep. it's amazing. It's an amazing uh, privilege and honor that that is. I agree. And one of the questions that Jason that we want to ask uh, as a result of that or um, after that is. How does Mark 117 affect the way we th- should think or the way we currently think about Christian growth?
0: It's a great question. Uh, you know I, I would start by saying that almost to give a disclaimer that what we're about to say in no way, in no way is is meant to imply that we haven't cared about Christian growth or that we, that we have have tried to, to lead people in a different way. I don't believe that. I think I think the typical American church, though, especially in the 20th century, um, bought into this idea that everything was incredibly individualistic and personal. And and so that's not a bad thing necessarily because we have a personal relationship with Jesus, for example, right? Or um, you know we have. There are elements of our faith that affect us individually. There's things we even do. There's there's thing, there's practices that that we engage in individually. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is if the goal of our Christian growth stays focused on us, on me, then it, it may be a misplaced focus for my Christian growth. So if, if discipleship models, for example... Um, as it's kind of come to be known, if they focus only on uh, an individual's development, then it, it ends up, without even meaning to, it ends up becoming very much about a very, a, a personal self-improvement concept, rather than what in Mark one seventeen Jesus seems to say, right? Like, so he says, he didn't say, follow me and I'll make you to become a better person or a a good Christian or a self-improved sinner or, you know, he says, I'll make you to become fishers of men. Now, again, he's speaking personally to mm-hmm. these fishermen. Right. And he's using a metaphor that obviously related to these fishermen, but he's taking their everyday ordinary lives and inviting them into this kingdom purpose. And that word, make you to become, the Greek that's used there. It's an existence and an identity statement. He's And he's saying, I, Jesus, I will make you to become. This is what your growth is going to traject you toward, being a fisher of men. And so therefore maturing, right, is, is, is more about a movement toward helping others discover their identity in Christ. A movement toward the fruit of my life, not just being about something that's evidenced in my life but a fruit that grows and impacts and is evidenced in someone else's life. So what would you say then Jason
1: if if, if um, for for Jesus if he were to, to define growth, how would you think that Jesus based on what we read in the scriptures would define spiritual growth?
0: I think I think as crazy as it sounds, I think he did define it in the end of luke Luke 9. um you know he says hey so if he wants to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me and you know because if you try to hold on to your life you'll lose it if you lose your life you'll gain it and he goes on to say some other things there that relate to what i'm about to say it's interesting because when he says uh, deny yourself and take up your cross daily we could call that a lot of different things, but, but we know what he doesn't mean, right? He doesn't mean that you and I are going to get crucified necessarily, that, that, in, in the way that he did, right? It's not, right. you know, his sacrifice is ultimate. But it, in, in some ways, he's basically, and I, and I get it, there's many ways we could talk about this, but he's basically saying, hey, I, I want you to not go after yourself. And your own, and and, and so self-righteousness and self-indulgence are included in that, right? Whether I build myself up religiously or I go after my own lusts and desires selfishly, both of those, if I move it out of Him making me to become something, then they both are self-pursuits. I want you to give that up and deny it, and I want you to join in on the bigger purposes of God. My Father's mission... Mm -hmm. And for me, that was taking up a cross. And I'm inviting you into that same mission. Now, I say that with confidence because of how often he says that. Hey, the same mission my Father gave to me, I'm giving to you, John 17, 18. Right? Like like that kind of thinking is there. And so, you know, it's almost like he's saying you... So Paul takes it there in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You're, let your bodies be an actual living sacrifice. Mm. Right? Like you just... You deny yourself... So the evidence, it's funny, I've said, i said when i when I used to teach um, Pauline New Testament stuff for a college in Orlando, I would, that semester, we spent a lot of time focusing on the, this idea that Paul was more frustrated and desperate later in his life, in his writings, mm-hmm. than he was early on. Right? In other words, the cross didn't get smaller and him get better. The cross and the gospel got bigger in his life, and he realized how desperate he was for it the older that he got. He writes Timothy in First 1 Timothy 1.15 and says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm foremost of all. You know, this, this later in his life desperation of, of recognizing how growth is evidenced by a greater desperation for the gospel, a a greater understanding of the denial of myself, and a greater engagement in the mission of God. And I think that's how he would define it. Mm. So spiritual growth isn't merely
1: being a better person or developing more morals. Yeah. Uh, More so indicative of whether or not you have Uh, connected with the mission of God and actively in pursuit of that, partnering with Christ uh, to reach a a lost and dying world.
0: Yeah. And and the way I say it to my son, to put it in very simple, concise terms, and and it's not something that we can use a mirror to assess because that becomes self-righteousness. And we don't mean to do that often, but that's really what it becomes. Like in the goat story and the sheep story in Matthew 25, the sheep didn't understand what they were doing, but they did it. Right. The goats thought they were doing it, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't, this is not a scorekeeping thing. We can really, we can't really look at our own selves. It almost has to be assessed by others. So you have to live this out in community to, for this growth to be encouraged. That's why the life groups are so important. And, and I say it to my son this way, you know, um, loving someone, being in on the mission of God is when you care more about their story and what they're becoming than your story and what you're becoming. Mm. That would evidence itself. That's growth, yeah. right? When I move away from my childish tendencies, as Paul says, and I and I move into this faith, hope, and love rhythms in my life.
1: Jason, talk to us a little bit about going and growing in this in the relationship there. My question to you is, how does going ensure growing while the opposite may not be always true?
0: So I, I, think, I think most people listening would probably agree that there's plenty of, ph- of philanthropy that people can engage in, plenty of community service that people can engage in, and, and yet never insert the gospel or insert Jesus. And we're pretty, you hear that a lot, right? So, so a lot of guys will make the argument that we, we're not going to get all hung up in this serving stuff because what we really need to be doing is teaching people about Jesus. That's not a bad argument. I mean, it's valid that, that that happens, right? That people go and they don't engage in the name of the gospel. They just go and do good stuff, right? They, they try just to, serve. Yeah. They just serve. They do need philanthropic stuff. So that, that's valid. And so, but, and I think most people listening would say we probably seen that, heard that, know that that's real. I would contend that at the same, the same way, the flip side of that it may be even more dangerous. The flip side of that is that we often will not do the going, but we'll start equating showing up to do a Bible study and showing up to do the church activities and showing up to do all these other facets that we are convinced are contributing to our spiritual growth, but they're all very much absorbed into my own personal interests. Right. I would, I would contend that that may be more toxic than the, the idea that just going and serving and not inserting Jesus. Right. Like, and I say that because when uh, when when Jesus in Matthew 23 uh you can call it whatever you want but it's pretty much a smackdown on the Pharisees so um so he gives this smackdown to the Pharisees and 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 I'm being very sincere with our listeners here like I I read through it and almost tear up every time Right for two reasons. One, because I feel like I am a, I'm like a, sna- I'm, I'm a millimeter away from being that. I grew up in church culture. My dad's a pastor. You know, like that could easily be me, having that rebuke. And the other reason that it hurts my heart, that it aches my heart, is I've met so many people as a pastor over the years who easily fall into the category of the people that he's rebuking there, but didn't mean to. Sometimes it just was that the pastor kept emphasizing things so much in a moralistic fashion that they became legalist and mm. didn't realize it. And yeah. sometimes it's that they just got convinced, right? That, that greater biblical knowledge is growth or, or that being able to exegete revelation is spiritual growth or, or having degrees in the in uh, from seminaries as spiritual growth or on and on and on whatever right and so Paul in Philippians 3 we won't use the word that he uses to to describe all of those spiritual trophies um that he had accumulated mm-hmm. but but he basically in the beginning of Philippians 3 is saying I I accumulated that trophy case I did all that stuff that everyone thinks equates to spiritual growth and got all the accolades and the, all the, all the awards and all the things that I could be patted on the back for spiritually. And yet I'm going to count every one of those, right, as human dung compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and laying hold of what has taken hold of me. And I think, I think what he's saying, cause he takes it there. He says, so hey, follow me as I follow Christ. He moves it into that category, which is exactly what Jesus did. Follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. So if I follow him, if I, so in other words, and this sounds weird, but, but make sure you catch the difference in these two statements. Catch the, catch the difference in the preposition. If I make disciples of Jesus and make that task and effort my own, I still even might be misguided because I I might be still just doing something that I think this is just what I'm supposed to do but if I commit to live my life going with Jesus to make disciples with Jesus not just for or of or but I really I understand that I have been invited along with Jesus Right. I don't I don't live just for him. I live yeah. with him yeah. and I go with him in this mission with him, this redemptive mission. It has a time clock. It ends at some point and 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 we'll 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 gather together around his throne. And before that happens, I've been invited into this restorative, redemptive salvation mission yeah. to go and give the gospel to a world that's already already under the finished work of the cross, but just being all, but, but like he says in Romans, we, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news and just invite those people to believe the gospel that's been given to us. If I go with him and do that, I will grow. That's the genius of the great commission to move, to become, to baptize and teach, right? When I make disciples, if I can, if I can teach as a disciple maker. I've, I'm already growing in understanding the scriptures. So disciple making ensures my growing. Mm. Right. But just trying to understand the scriptures doesn't ensure my going. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I mean, I've had people admit to me. I had a 68 year old pastor in a pastor's conference I was teaching at one time with, I mean, and I'm not kidding, man. He wasn't just teary eyed. He was sobbing. He came up to me and he said, Hey, I'm 68 and he, and he had to take breaths as he was sobbing and crying. And he said, in my 38 years as a pastor, I've never equipped someone to make a disciple, much less made one myself. Now you might say that's an exception, but I would suggest that that's all too often the norm. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think we can do a lot of great things for God and never really get involved in what he's asked us to go with him on. And so yeah. going will ensure my growing. Growing in the way that we often understand it as just personal improvement concepts or benefits that are engaged with my personal interests spiritually, um, that doesn't always ensure going. So we just need to be sensitive to that. Yeah, well, that's, that's a def-
1: definitely a different way for me to think uh This whole idea of going with Jesus because it's not like he uh you know had a mission that he just handed off to his disciples and then he just kind of dismissed himself and let them take it from there It's yeah. very much a partnership with the work that he continues to do yeah. in our world that's right it's still his mission that we're a part of so yeah you're right we are so that's something that, man, is kind of new for, kind of a new thinking for me, hmm.
0: perhaps. Well, man, and, it, and it's so, it's so rich, man. Like, and I hope, I hope our listeners hear this. Like, my biggest concern is that Jesus said Himself in John ten ten that He came that we might have life and have it abundantly, and in that context, as well as in John fifteen, He seems to equate that to our bearing of fruit, to our loving like He loves, to our, in essence, disciple-making, to being a sent people. And and so I just don't want want people to miss out on abundant life. If that's what abundant life is, the going with Jesus, I don't want you to miss out on it. I think that matters. It does.
1: Hey, it's been a great week. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me do it. Yeah, man. It's been a great week. We've enjoyed... uh unpacking some of these questions around the curriculum and so we'll crank back up again on monday of next week and we look forward to that time together look forward to it